I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that truculent master of sciences, Jeff Goad. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, very truculent indeed. And a huge bushy beard. No, not really, but... <laughs> truculent and succulent. <laughs> um, so normally, we would have an episode with our special guests. Unfortunately, they had a conflict and couldn't make it this week. So we have, we'll present to you again our patron book club, which was a particularly good session this week. Take it away, book club. Happy howdy, howdy. Sunday. Hey. Happy, Happy Sunday. Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, um, Adam, tell us about the edition of the book you're working with. Okay, I've got uh, Warner Books. It's got a cool picture of his pipe and his deer stalker and the space theme thing behind it. Awesome. 1975. And I think that was the only the, printing at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I've got the same one. Uh, we've got a laser beam shooting dirigible in the background. Uh, right. That was last week's word. <laughs> yeah. Hoy, what do you got? I have the ebook of the recent Titan reissue on on the Kindle. Um, that was on sale about like three months ago. So. Mm. What you got, Eric? I've got the uh, I've got the same Warner copy. So this is Eric's Manly Wade Wellman's Wade Wellman's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes's H.G. Wells's <laughs> War of the Worlds. <laughs> right. right. Got layers. But yeah, I love the, the scene on the cover does not actually seem to happen in the book. I kept wondering yeah. if, if this was going to but it, it doesn't get there. No. Oh, now no. I'm jealous. Now I actually have to get a physical copy, but... I yeah. think this was the only one, right? Or, or no, they, it I was think that was the only edition until Titan reissued it. Recently. That's right, a more yeah. recent one. Yeah, and they kind of yeah. retitled it like The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Right, because I think they have a whole series of uh, other Sherlock Holmes pastiches that exactly. they have also reissued. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a whole Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes series, and this is yeah. one of them that they reissued. And the yeah, artist one of them is, is Philip Jose Farmer also. Mm. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And the artist is Franco Acanero, who I've not encountered before. Mm-hmm. I don't think. It doesn't seem like there was as much crossover between science fiction artists and um, sort of more mainstream, um, mm. you know, mystery crime artists. Yeah, maybe. By, uh, certainly by the 70s, it seems like there was less of that. So I'm debating for, for the for the word of the for the. Uh, Hygaxian word of the week. I'm thinking about either truculent or contrivance. What do you guys think? I think truculent. That's great because that's, that's completely a challenger word. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> do you guys ha- do you guys have opinions? Uh, truculent's good. Yeah. That that means like um, cutting out here. It, it it means like unpleasant, right? Unpleasant, truculent. argumentative. Eager or quick to argue or fight, aggressively defiant. Yeah. Oh, and we've got somebody in our waiting room. All right. So Matt is connecting. Hey, Matt, can you hear us? I can. Oh, and you got the hat. 
Yep. <laughs> awesome. Do you also have the Ulster to, to go with it? No, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the hat itself is still amazing. There you go. Uh, we were just talking about which editions we all have. So do you have, uh, what, what edition are you working with today, Matthew? Um, an ebook uh-huh. edition. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah you and hoy are in the the same boat right but week. i'm jealous of the rest because they all have the 1975 printing with the the dear stalker on the cover exactly your hat is on the cover nice <laughs> floating in front of a dirigible that's shooting laser beams there you go um and eric's having some internet issues so he's going to be working on that and we'll be coming back but yeah, so um, I guess maybe starting with Matt, what did you think of Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds? I finished it about a week ago and spent the week thinking about it. And as a Sherlock Holmes story, I'm not entirely sold. But as a as part of this project, I am really intrigued as to what, like, once we get into the gaming side, what what we could pull out of it to, and I had, I've come up with some interesting, at least interesting to me ideas about what, what you could do with some of that. Um, some of the concepts and things that were discussed, like presented in the stories. Are you a, a Sherlockian of uh, longstanding and also have you read the challenger stories? I've read, I, I've read the, I think the lost world is mm-hmm. a challenger story. Um, and I read that, yeah, I read that years ago, but yes, um, not, not a Sherlockian in the obsessive, like just the, I guess what they call Stan these days sense. Um, but it's, I've definitely been around the stories and I believe my dad and grandfather both, um, kind of thought of themselves as a little bit like Sherlock, certainly my grandfather who who came from England and did the, like he had a study that for a while was a chemistry lab and then a photography, like a studio. And then (laughs) like, so he did computers for his day job and then he did geology and chemistry and photography. And then later on computers, like, PCs for like when he retired. And um, so I think he kind of thought of himself a bit as like Sherlock and was always very like definite about what he, (laughs) once he thought something through and sort of the way that Sherlock is. So, so yeah, it's been around, I've been around Sherlock a lot um, in the stories and things. So. So let me also throw that at Eric and Adam, since this is a pastiche, are you familiar with how familiar are you guys with the sort of original materials, both the, Conan Doyle and the H.G. Wells materials. I read uh, a good bit of the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, and it's been a while. Mm. Uh, but but I'm pretty familiar with that. And I read War of the Worlds like a long time ago. And that, my memory is pretty fuzzy of, because that was like, you know, I think I was in high school when I read that. Long, mm. long ass time ago at this point. How about you, Eric? I, um, as, as, Part of reading this before I read the Sherlock Holmes War of the Worlds, I I went back and read the original again, um, and I read. I'm not that familiar with the Sherlock stories, so I read. I mean, I've seen like Holmes and the right. Sherlock TV show. Um, I've not seen that Holmes and Watson movie. I heard it was terrible, but 
I don't know if it's canon, but, um, but so I went back and I read study in Scarlet just to read the first story to get a sense. Right. Right. Um, How about, how about you, Jeff? I have not read the war of the worlds and I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think I've actually read a Sherlock Holmes story either. Right. For my part, I was pretty recent to this stuff. I had read uh, War of the Worlds about three, now I'm going to say about five years ago. But the first three Sherlock books I've only read in the last two years. Um, I will say, Matthew, um, whether or not they were good Sherlock Holmes mystery, I thought that uh, one thing they did very well as far as um, Sherlock's home pastiche is they actually caught his humanity. Because I think way too many of the sort of popular um, treatments, the movies, stuff like that, make him like this sort of... Um, borderline Aspergery genius, if not an outright sociopath. And here he's a very warm person. You know, he's got a certain layer of, you know, sarcasm on top of that and sort of detachment. Yeah. But so I think they caught that quite well. Yes. I think I think they caught that better than a lot of a lot of adaptations. Um it mostly and I think interestingly what what they're missing, they actually call out in the book through challenger is right. that ho- a lot of Holmes's skills and experience are around human humanity right, right. so they the, so they they capture the humanity and then they realize that through even acknowledged through the writing that they've put them in a situation where there isn't much to do with humanity they're 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 trying to address an alien invasion and right and he's sort of left. <laughs> right. So that, so yeah, as a, as a, yeah. So that's, that's where I think the, the, the story story part for me is sort of, it's not, not too much of a Sherlock Holmes story. It's Sherlock Holmes in war of the worlds, which is as advertised, but. So. Right. Now, and what do you um, guys think? Of, sorry, go ahead. Has, has, I'm sorry. So who has read, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, who's read professor challenger stories? I've read a couple. Okay, I've read one. one. Not me. All right. Is he as yeah. insufferable in those stories as he? Oh, is absolutely. In this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I couldn't quite remember, but I, yeah. I, the more I thought about it, because it, it had been. I mean, he's even quicker years, with his fists but... than the actual in the actual Conan Doyle stories. It's like has no hesitation to like throw someone through a window. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I kind of came around to him. I was like, I did. I did. Yeah. I had the opposite. I, I I enjoyed him when he was a side character initially, but then when he became the star of his own story, I could not stand him. All right. I, I just liked his like. Um, I would be fascinated to have a story like told through his wife's point of view. Because I, I really like that relationship between him and his wife, actually. You know, there's really? this... Really? Like, <laughs> yeah. The long-suffering think, Mrs. Challenger. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Challenger. <laughs> um, but actually, I like the relationship with Sherlock and Mrs. Hudson, too, that like that Watson's completely unaware of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I picture, um, uh, in this version, Mrs. Hudson is being played by Joanna Lumley. You know, mm. so... That's fascinating, Hoy, because I hated the relationships between the men and the the the, the two main men and the two main women in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them were so sycophantic and so willing to do anything to please the other to, to please that man. Um, and even to the point where, like, at one point, like Martha says, I've always loved you, Sherlock Holmes. And he's like, You haven't always loved me. We've only known each other for a certain amount of time. And she's like, Oh, you're right. And it's like, 
<laughs> she's telling you she loves you and you're arguing semantics with her and she swoons even more. Like, oh, it's I, I just... Well, I that semantic thing is just like him in general. So it's not particularly directed at her because I've seen him do that with, you know, all the other characters and in all the other books too. So I think that's... um, uh, I think there's what I'm... Th- I, maybe I'm sensing some layers there that just aren't there in the text, you know? And maybe it's because of all the other popular treatments of the both characters. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Adam. I, I just like that relationship for another reason, and maybe I'm getting the Sherlock Holmes character wrong, but I kind of see him as like somebody who isn't romantic and isn't interested in that kind of thing. And, you know, is kind of this uh, almost like an asexual character who's only obsessed with his solving his crimes and all that stuff and having him be all lovey dovey with her doesn't feel right to me. Maybe I'm confusing the adaptations with the original, but that's how, that's why I didn't like it. Yeah. I don't I think, think they had a relationship in there. No, they didn't. They didn't. It's definitely, wait, no. it's definitely the well-men's pride. I think there's two things you're going on there with Adam. Um, I think you're right in sort of the popular treatment. And I don't even think it's necessarily present in the, but um, as I was saying, that Holmes is a warmer character in the actual Holmes books than we see him in the popular treatment. So I think it was an elaborate joke on the Wellman's part about you know how people have a misconception about Holmes. And that Holmes' humanity at the end, it's like he has that key moment at the very end, right? Where he just prevents Challenger from making a huge mistake, right? Yeah. Anyway, but carry on. So I, I don't mean to like suck it all into like Holmes's love life when we're here to talk about D&D. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the love lives are, are very central to a lot of these like um, individual stories. And the one right. Challenger drove me fucking nuts. You know, Mrs. Challenger and, and Mr. And, and Professor Challenger, like that whole storyline, like the first the first couple of times we're introduced to her. Um, like, where's OK, on page 100, um, she is saying to him, you know, George, I have a right to ask you why you never hinted to me of all these things until now. Do you believe I would be frightened to distraction? And he says, that, my dear, is exactly what I believe. You would never have slept at night and you would have worried by day, which in turn would have worried me. And he bent his shaggy face to kiss her. That's the end of that little story. So it's like she complains. He tells her to stop complaining and kisses her. And how she responds doesn't matter. We don't know what her response is. And like, again, that happens like on page 106, where it's like, um, on page 106, it says, um, um, oh, actually, that's not the part. 111. He's making that choice for her. He's saying, I didn't want to panic you. I have this information. And if if you knew, yeah. Right. I mean, yes. And but exactly. I think it still points out ex- exactly how much of a, a dick he is. Right, and he's a dick yeah. in all of his books. So and again, I, she says like, "Where are you taking us?" That's the direction of danger. And he says, "The main thoroughfare is too cluttered. Countryways will be better." And again, like it just stops. So it's like every time she like complains about anything or argues anything, he just like has something to say, and that's the end of it. And right. it's and then like later, so like not only do we have this like like this woman who like she voices dissent is constantly shut down. And we don't even, from the from the reader's perspective, even get to find out whether or not she's like, okay, honey, or if she's like seething in anger, because it doesn't matter, apparently. Right. Her response her, her her reaction to it just doesn't matter from the text point of view. Right. Um, and then later well, on, we also just get her treated as like a total moron, too, because like there's the there's the scene where um 
where she's like, I don't know. Um, what she was talking about how she didn't sleep at all the night before. She's like, I don't know. I could possibly sleep the night. Um, I don't know why I'm so tired because I couldn't sleep at all the night before. So there's no way I'd be able to sleep tonight. And he's like, well, honey, you're probably tired because you didn't sleep very much last night. <laughs> and it's uh, it just drove me nuts. Yeah, see, I, 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 I see all that same stuff in the text, and you're probably, you're probably taking the right read of it. But to me, it's more just like, this is showcasing how much challenges sort of up. And, even, and Holmes, both of them. Everybody, each of these characters has these blind spots, and there's probably a lot going on with her. But since it's being told from sort of, not literally challenges point of view, but closely aligned to his point of view, that he's actually missing a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I was seeing in, when I was reading this. And that she's probably got a lot of hidden depths, like, okay... You know, behind every like crazed egomaniac of a, a man, there's a great woman, and she's probably <laughs> a great woman, right? And this is, you know, it's the whole Victorian playing on all this nonsense. Um, but I don't think um, that it was necessarily deliberately minimizing either one of these characters. Is that's is what I was taking away from it. But again, you might be more right reading from the text than I am. I might just I be mean, bringing something to it. It's literature is subjective. There's no right or wrong. Right. <laughs> it's certainly where I'm coming yeah. from. <laughs> yeah. But. Uh, so how about I, I, any of the rest of the stuff, the War of the World stuff? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Matt, do you want to take that question? The War of the Worlds yeah, how aspects? Did you feel, yeah, how did you feel the War yeah. of the Worlds aspects fit into Holmes and Challenger? I, I felt they fit a lot more into, and this, this might have just been how many stories were Challenger-centric, but they fit a lot more into Challenger's, like, the, the arc and the, the structure of cha- of what I remember of Challenger stories and certainly the character, there were things for him to punch and wrestle and, <laughs> and brilliant scientific insights to make. Whereas, as I said earlier, uh, my feeling was that like they didn't give Holmes a lot of, of space to do the Holmes thing um, without or with, with or without all the layers that, that, that are there in in the originals and are usually missed in the adaptations and other other works um, just yeah Holmes is very much in my reading very much about about the human as much about the humanity of the characters that come to him with problems as he is about the brilliant and sometimes crazy leaps that he can make in, in deduction that, that he puts all together uh, and with, with the primary antagonists and, and kind of characters in which the whole thing revolved around being extraterrestrial. Like there, there was a little bit where Holmes convinced the um, country squire not to assemble a brigade and go out and try and fight the war machines head on. And, that was that was a little bit more like like what Holmes is as a character does, and especially in terms of convincing Lestrade and the various other inspectors in Scotland Yard about where they're where they're blind and where they're missing things about the case. He was a lot more removed, and the the aliens provided a much better foil for the for the challenger character to 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 look at. Oh well, look at where the sun is and how much smaller it is and, and all the the kind of scientific stuff and then when they actually arrive to wrestle them and <laughs> stuff like that so um it, it would have been 
perhaps more accurately described as Professor Professor Challenger in the War, War of the Worlds, but he doesn't quite have the uh, the the following and the the literary. Right. Uh, or I mean, that might be exactly why they did that way. That way, right? They really wanted to tell a Challenger story, but they knew that they needed to tell a home story in order to tell, in order to tell a Challenger story. Yeah. Well, and I feel like there's one moment in the book that does a really kind of um, interesting job of showcasing the difference between Challenger, Holmes, and Watson. And it's the moment where um, where Challenger suggests feeding diseased people to the aliens. And Watson is completely shocked and um, appalled by this suggestion. And Holmes is kind of strangely silent in the background. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think about that, what that moment says about those three characters. And I'd, I'd love to ask you, Adam, what do you think? It shows that Watson is a very, he's a feeler. He's a very warm hearted guy, you know, and, uh, the other two, two, it really Holmes is just as bad as challenger as far as like being like a cold person. He's just a little bit more subtle about it than challenger he doesn't object you know he didn't bring it up but he's not shooting it down either he's not saying it's wrong whereas watson sees that and he's just like a a very compassionate and passionate guy and he just he's just revolted but really challenger and holmes are on the same page although holmes is a lot quieter about it i think that's kind (laughs) of um my take on it is similar, but maybe a little bit slightly a couple degrees to the left, which is I think that that's sort of a, a id, super ego, uh, ego scene. Right? Oh, interesting. Right. And challenges pure super ego there. It's just like completely rationalistic. This is the thing to do. And like Holmes is kind of mulling it over, kind of trying to balance between those two aspects and thinking like, well, we could do this, but what's the cost to us to do this? You know? Yeah. So what do you think, Eric? Yeah, there I think you guys have hit the nail on the head. You know, Challenger is the brazen, bold character. He's willing to do whatever. And and it, I guess, I guess examining this moment kind of reminds me of a scene from the original War of the Worlds, uh, where our narrator encounters somebody who, you know, out in the, you know, in the thick of it, who is like thinks they're going to be part of a resistance, and they're a little too eager to be part of this resistance. They're already thinking about how they're going to structure the world and how they will pick the women and who will get the women. They'll live <laughs> so in the Michigan, Michigan militia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, and there, but my point is, you know, they were willing to do whatever it took, but it also spoke to who they were and how they were going to react to this situation. And we can, that, that character actually comes up in this story again uh, as I think Morgan uh, challenger's assistant so that character is Hi. with challenger challenger doesn't recognize those kind of like uh super ego living in the id qualities in this person and uh yeah i think that person turned out to be like the son of a super criminal or something right sebastian moran in the yes yes yeah. <laughs> so, so, which is um moriarty's henchman there you go so. yeah but no that moment perfectly sums up you know, the differences between these three protagonists now, another thing that came up for me that I thought was interesting that I'd love to kind of get your guys' take on is um, it's two things. One on page 46 and one on page 81 that kind of play, play with each other. On page 46, um, um, who is this? This is Holmes who's saying, either they propose to civilize and benefit us or conquer and exploit us. 
in my judgment, either program will amount to almost the same plight for humanity. So Holmes is talking about how whether or not they're here to civilize us or exploit us, both of these things are bad. And as a commentary on colonialism, that's potentially very interesting. And then on page 81, um, um, Hopkins says, you speak as though you are studying a crime, Mr. Holmes. And he says, and so I am, Hopkins, the most infamous crime ever perpetrated upon Earth and against Earth. So he's also saying this is like a great crime that's being perpetrated against us by these creatures who are trying to either um, civilize or exploit us. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious. Do you guys think this is intentional commentary on behalf of the author authors, or is this just something that um, a modern reader might pick up on and add their own meaning to? That's a theme that's in the original book. Yeah. Um, there's some anti-colonial, or at least at least pausing to examine the role of Britain in uh, colonialist, you know, imperialism and imposing their will and culture on on other. Right. Wasn't Wells a sort of um, sort of proto-socialist or early yeah. socialist? Yeah, yeah. actual so, socialist. I actual socialist. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, this was written at the height of the Vietnam War, so I think that that certainly would have been whether or not you had one perspective or another on it, you would have been aware of those issues. You know, it was the height of the post-colonial post-colonial movements in um, you know in the sixties and early seventies. So, um, and um, I think there's an interesting thing again there uh, that. In many ways, Holmes is the most human figure here, um, because Challenger again. Challenger, we keep on hearing him about going visiting the savage tribes and doing, you know, uh, phrenology, you know, measuring their heads and skull, craniology and stuff like that. And um, uh, Watson is a very feeling character, but he's also again former British Army doctor. He's been in Afghanistan. He's part of the British Empire, whereas Holmes can relate from everyone from high to low. Right? He doesn't ha- hold you know, criminals necessarily in low regard, you know, he's constantly going in disguise amongst them, you know, so he can, he can deal with all classes. He does not directly part of the imperialist project the way that challenger and, and Watson have been. So, yeah, just, just my take. Another thing that I thought was interesting was how um, both Holmes and uh, challenger are, one is given a titular line and one is almost given a titular line. Uh, Holmes very specifically says, um, but it takes no great deductive reasoning to see that this hopelessly one-sided war of the worlds will move, will move toward us. So Holmes specifically says war of the world. However, Challenger says, I foresee that it will be a war between worlds. So Holmes gets like an exact titular line and Challenger gets an almost titular line do you think this is also kind of commentary on these characters' intellectual abilities in a weird way, or am I reading reading too much into that moment? Meaning that <laughs> that 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 one of them gets to the heart of the matter more than the other, or, or... exactly, exactly, like because one of them one of them gets an uh, gets gets to succeed at delivering a titular line, and one attempts to deliver it, but and almost gets it, but isn't quite there. Is that saying something about these characters or no? Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a stretch. I think. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> I thought that was interesting though. Right, right. <laughs> but I also recognize that, you know, we all we all bring our own our own um 
perspective into everything right. we read. I do like how Challenger is like, oh, the humanities, you know, he's the best at the humanities, but he's really not, that's really not the same thing as hard science, you know, when he's talking about Holmes. So, yeah, yes. <laughs> but but it's, it is Holmes at the very end who says like, oh, you know, you're like a monkey, a chimpanzee with a trainer's loaded revolver. Right? And, just, <laughs> and also, what about the scene where um, we, we kind of hear that they came up with this like really brilliant way of preserving the alien. And then we find out they just threw them in a bathtub full of brandy. Yeah. <laughs> across the street yeah, yeah they had a bathtub in the basement and they filled it full of brandy like that right. was the brilliant way that they had um come up with preserving right. this creature i like that when holmes is like visibly pained when like uh watson is pouring like the really good scotch into the <laughs> <laughs> yeah so matthew did you were there any particular high or low moments in the story for you no i don't i don't yeah nothing Nothing particularly high or low. It was um, it was an easier read than some of the other appendix and um, bit more polished. If it had been Professor Challenger in the War of the Worlds, I might have like picked out some things a bit more. But then also, I might not have just I might just not have read it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, like that's been my feeling reflecting on it is that it was competently written, but nothing really like hit a high or it just sort of was pretty easy to read, read like it had been edited. Like Fair. Yeah, I'm, speaking I, of the readability, does anybody know how much of this is manly Wade Wilman and how much of this is the not manly Wade Wilman? Um, no, it's not clear to me. I have a feeling that it's more Wade and then Manly coming back through, Dad coming back through and saying, you know, this is more Sherlock than not. And, you know, you don't have the character quite right here. Um, so you're getting less of a Manly vibe from this. Well, I'm not saying I don't really haven't read all of like uh, Manly Wade Wilman's non um, John the Balladeer stories to, to know, like, I don't I can't pick out like, you know, from like this sentence or that sentence is a particularly Manly Wade Wilman project. But I yeah. feel like um, I feel like this seems like it was initiated by Wade, Wade Wilman, the son. Right. Yeah, and and so it seems like it's more of like, oh, I've got this idea, and I, his dad came in and it's like, well, son, you know, you're a very good writer, but here's how I would have done this scene, or here's how I would change this thing, you know. I feel like there's take. a there's like a distinct uh, lack of songs in it. If it was right, right. <laughs> <laughs> very fair. Yes, right. <laughs> Not even a Welsh ballad or two. No, no Welsh baritones. <laughs> So, I thought like a, a low point for me was like they they did a lot of talking about who was smarter than who, and you know decrying the scientists and you know like, and the journalists yeah and and, the journalists yeah and and H G Wells I love that that Watson <laughs> Wells writes in the yeah. like, letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is an interesting choice though to take somebody's fantasy universe. And then have one of your main protagonists constantly like bashing that author of that fantasy universe. Right. Um, I did read an interesting take. I mean, it's like very brief, interesting in, in the Wikipedia entry, but I think that sheds some light on it, which is that I think they understood that the essential premise that they were putting forth is contradictory to H.G. Wells' essential premise. With H.G. Wells' essential premise is that humanity has no power whatsoever. Whereas this essential premise is that these are two brilliant men even though it's ultimately still a disease that takes these things down, that these two brilliant men can affect a situation. 
right? Or, or, the very, or at least the central premise of a Conan Doyle story. So if you're going to put a Conan Doyle story into Wells' story, then one of those two premises has to give, right? And so that they're smart enough to say that in this case, whether or not Wells' premise is false, Watson being a conservative imperialist, you know, essentially good-hearted person, but seeing through his limited Victorian point of view, it's going to think that Wells' premise is entirely wrong, right? Mm. Interesting. And well said. Yeah. So looking at so. this from a gaming perspective, I'm curious, there, there were two specific things that felt very AD&D to me. And I'm curious, um, before I dive in, if there's any things that you guys picked up as being very much something you would find in one of the three core books. The crystal egg um, as like a scrying device. Okay, yeah. cool. My two things, one ties into that, um, um, is that uh, lead prevents scrying. And that's something that's very clearly delineated in AD&D. Um, what is it like a foot of like a, like an inch of lead will um, prevent any scrying. Uh, and we see that happening right here in the book. And also this is a silly one, but the um, uh, rat comma Sumatran from the <laughs> um, monster manual. Um, and here we have, they're talking about the Sumatran rat and I was, and I was curious. So I Googled it. And when you Google Sumatran rat, basically the main thing that comes up is there's a, there's a um, Sherlock Holmes story called Sherlock Holmes and the Sumatran and the, the, the giant rat of Sumatra or something, right. uh, which apparently is like one of the best known Sherlock Holmes pastiches. Um, but like, I don't really see much references to Sumatran rats otherwise. Right. So I do think that that specifically comes from right. the Holmes pastiches. Right. And not even literally pastiche, it was literally, I believe, and people can correct me if I'm wrong in Matthew, especially because if you're a Sherlockian, that it was because that it was a case that was mentioned in the original home stories as a story that could not be told because it was too weird and horrible. And so a lot of people have written that as yeah. like uh, Holmes versus Dracula, Holmes versus Cthulhu, Holmes. So everybody's had their take on what the Holmes versus the Sumatran rat is, but it was never told by Conan Doyle. So Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So. Cool, cool. So looking at this from a gaming perspective, I'm curious, um, Adam, is there anything that you'd want to steal from this? Yeah, a monster that drinks your blood with a straw. <laughs> <laughs> Very civilized. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe another monster that uh, eats you with a knife and fork. <laughs> 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 how about you matt so the the main thing was the the concept that um you were we were just talking about um or you were just talking about there is the um the idea that like because challenger and holmes in in some ways are are upper mid kind of high level characters in in some ways they're like they're they're pulp protagonists so nothing or challenger is or proto pulp and holmes is is brilliant um so they're they've got like a lot of points in intellect or high intelligence scores or and and lots of brawn and things and just creating a situation where like trying to trying to create like an entire storyline or situation where high level protagonists actually 
can't fight against the um, against the problem. And if they if they go down the right path, they'll learn that like the problem will eventually go away. And then what wasn't done in these stories, but would would be interesting to play out in a game, is is like how they how they interacted with the rest of civilization or the rest of the world trying to keep it together because once they figure out that the problem is going to like the aliens are going to be defeated by bacterium or whatever um just having a very non D &D, very highbrow kind of game um where they try and go around keeping keeping the world together while they wait for something else to defeat this thing that even they can't they can't defeat um so that mm-hmm. that's where i i landed as sort of like what what kind of inspiration is like because i at the moment i'm in like high level character i'm looking at um monty cook's cypher system and they have rules for basically superheroes or demigods in there um and and what kind of campaign i like I'm trying to plan out something to run in that space. And this, this thinking about this gave me that idea. It's like, okay, what if this is something that the demigods actually can't do anything about something else in the environment is going to do about it, do something about it. And then their job becomes doing heroic things to, to keep, I don't know, civilization for lack of a better word together until this, some, until the bacteria kill off the aliens right so anyhow that was where i was going with (laughs) inspiration for gaming from this very cool how about you eric um i on a similar line is what matt said um i a little bit different but you know some inspiration i got like our heroes don't actually do anything to beat the invaders the story it, it just happens around them and it's about how they as characters react to it and cope with it so in a game this is like a different if you were to run a game like this it's like an overall disaster game there's like an overwhelming threat that in the face of this overwhelming threat the the players or, or our protagonists here can't actually do anything to stop it um it, it reminds me of, I played in a game uh, a couple of weeks ago in um, a, uh, a system that a guy I know created called uh, Santiago 73. And it's like a simulation of the military coup in Chile, right? Like um, coming in and, and you play as kind of normal people living in that situation and you have to deal with this. There's this overwhelming threat that you can do nothing. You can't really stop the overall threat, much like Holmes and Challenger and Watson. They just kind of observed it happening. happening. So I wondered it. You know, I don't think I've ever run a game like this, like an overall disaster, you know, apocalypse, some some threat that you can't do anything with. It might be fun. I, I think I think the challenge is to find the uh, the wins and the successes for the the, the players in that. So right. I don't I don't well, know how I'd execute it, but it certainly would be a good challenge. I think one of the wins or successes would be conditions would be you know, directing, uh, directing civilians to safety or encouraging them not to get, you know, to go into a suicidal battle or any of those kind of, you know, any of those little aspects of the humanity part that sometimes characters are so intent on smashing themselves against the foe and say, no, you're going to get the XP for rescuing these hundred villagers, not for trying to kill off one of these tripods, you know, or something like that. But how about like you, Adam? Yeah. Oh no, Adam's already shared his. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, well, how about you, Jeff? 
for me, I I really like the idea of uh, giving some monsters some mechanical wings, and uh, <laughs> and what it, and, I, and part of the reason why I dig that is I feel like it would be fun to kind of um, intentionally describe the wings as kind of mechanical. And then if and when the PCs defeat the monsters, if they choose to investigate these mechanical wings, they may find that it, they might be able to get wings that can, mechanical wings that can work for them as well. But if they don't choose to investigate that, then that was just a lost opportunity for them. Um, right. But I think that could be a really interesting thing to put into a game. And in fact, I'm going to go ahead. I've got my 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 old school gaming um, um, game that I'm running each week. I'm going to go ahead and add um, with mechanical wings to one of my upcoming random encounters. Um, um, Hoy, pick a number between two and sixty-seven. Uh, uh, Fifty-three. Fifty-three. Okay, it is being added to these giant leeches. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> giant leeches with mechanical flying leeches with mechanical wings perfect there I we go that. so yes that's uh, been added so what i would take from this um and again it might be a violation of the concept at the end game so from what eric is talking about um i think i would let the characters affect stuff but not initially the, this this invasion this apocalypse this uh crumbling would happen but i would take it from this as an, an inversion of the traditional D structure where traditional D&D characters go out into the wilderness and civilize stuff. I would have the, the game happen in the civilized heartland of whatever setting you have. And in this case, it's London, right? And it's being invaded. And so it could be a couple, it could operate at a couple levels. We could just run it as a DCC funnel where all your characters are literally just regular civilians of some sort, peasants, whatever it is that normal people in that society have. And then this invasion happens and, they, you know, the first scenario is them escaping and that's the final. And if they, they, so they, they survive, they level up and they can join the resistance or do whatever it is that you want them to do in a sort of setting that is not quite post-apocalyptic, but it is also in ruins, right? Uh, and then maybe they eventually find something like, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're not, maybe the, this invading force is not vulnerable to germs as such, but you find like there is this one substance that they are vulnerable to, and that's part of the little quest within the game, right? And something that might be fairly common, uh, you know, sheep dung. <laughs> you know, right? It's like, oh, we make it, we can, if we can find enough sheep, we can make all these sheep dung catapult pellets, right? Um, the other thing is kind of where Matthew and Eric were talking. This is also a good example for you. Okay, maybe your characters have gotten to the domain game. It's like, oh, we're all settled. We've got our domain. Okay, now we're going to go, I'm just going to go smash that down yeah. and have a single land. Right. And just like toss over your domain game. Right. And no matter how powerful it doesn't matter if you have a 10 D 10 D six fireball, you can only cast that like, you know, five times a day. And these things are all, you know, have, uh, you know, 300 hit points, whatever they are. Um, and also since Jeff, you mentioned with these wings, like, you know, maybe each one of these things is the, the equivalent of an apparatus of Qualish and it will really just F up your game if they can figure out how to use it. But let's have it in there anyway and see what happens because you're already in the domain game, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, no <laughs> doubt. Get those, get those um, what, are the, what is it, the milking stools? Um, is, is that how they describe, describe them? Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Throw some of those into your campaign. Right, because Challenger was about to climb in, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. And speaking of Challenger, I actually just thought of another thing that could be fun. So Holmes potentially has a pretty accurate reading on his own um, exceptionalism. And Challenger probably has an inflated reading on his own exceptionalism. So what might be kind of a fun and interesting thing to do as well is to have 
player stats and GM stats. So there's the stats that the player thinks their character has. This is their perception <laughs> of their own abilities, but then the GM has what those stats really are. So you're, 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 <laughs> so when you roll something, the GM knows what that really means. Um, and this is something like you, the players know that they're, that the stats they have are just yeah. what, how, how, how smart and how, and how strong they think their character is. Right. Uh, that could potentially be a really kind of fun way of running at the very least, like a con game. I don't know if I right. would want to do a whole campaign like that, but that, that could be a fun, a fun twist. Right. Right. Or you give them like a narrative tag, like brilliant, but brilliant could be anywhere between like 12 intelligence and 18 intelligence. Because because you're just like that much above average of everybody else, right? But how many deviations above average are you really? (laughs) Um, Or it could be the reverse. You have a character with low self esteem, right? That that's like got an 18 whatever strength, and they don't think they can do it. (laughs) Or you have all these um you know games with target numbers, right? And so. You, you make out like these things are like really high. Tar- you don't actually tell the players what the actual target numbers, but you make out like this thing is like, oh, you rolled a, you know, a 20, great. But it was only like a DC three challenge, right? <laughs> and, and then you actually throw them like the DC 15 challenge, like at the most weird and inopportune moment. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a dick thing to do, but it would be kind of fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but I mean, obviously this is a perfect for Call of Cthulhu or something like that, you know, um, or now maybe the more pulp version of Call of Cthulhu if you were to run this. In, in sort of uh, a setting that's sort of more geared towards this mm-hmm. um, because no matter how powerful you, you're physically, you're still fragile. Right. And, and, you know, the Martians are sort of proto uh, proto Lovecraftian beasties in a certain way. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's no chance that you're going to survive a blast of the heat ray or the black right. smoke. Like if, if that happens, you're just toast. Right. Um, so yeah, so like, let's say you did want to run at the very least like a con game where you've got a similar setup where you are, you know, folks who are experiencing the war of the worlds, uh, what kind of a, what kind of a game system would you want to use for something like that? Let's start with you, Matt. Warhammer fantasy roleplay. Oh, cool. Sure. That would work. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. I would not have gone there with it, but that's actually very clever. Yeah. Like to do probably for the kind of like the funnel or low level play that, that Hoy was describing, just like I'd really, well, any of the careers, but, but pick restrict to some of the squishier careers in that like first, first le- or first, cause they don't have levels first career level. Um, in some of the, cause it's full of, um, like road wardens and villagers and burgers and, and very squishy nobles. And, <laughs> um, there are, there are a few harder characters in the, in the nights and, and things like that. But most, most of, most of that world is full of very, especially I haven't played it, but especially I understand the first, first edition is, yeah. is full of, um, of characters that, um, if they were, and, and and it's set up with the the like statted out, you could just pull in some of the the chaos demons and turn them into to Martians with tripods, and and first career characters have having a hope in heck <laughs> doing anything against those. So um, yeah, I think that's probably where I'd go with that. How about you, Eric? 
So you could go a couple different directions. If I was running this in a, as a very like as it's unfolding realistic uh, game, I would say I could uh, adapt like a Call of Cthulhu because the, the characters would be very squishy. Uh, the monsters would be very alien. The other direction would be if you set it uh, maybe um, two weeks to a month into this. I know that the story really ends after two weeks, but let's say it kept going. Uh, you could use Mutant Crawl Classics and make it very like part of the resistance in this mm -hmm. post-alien invasion world and, and how you survive. That's fun. I like that. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I was thinking Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 made for that because it's like the enemy you can't beat. You're just doing harm reduction, you know, and uh, that's the best you can hope for. Now, have any of you guys played Gangbusters? No. Okay. Well, we've the original one way back way back in the day yeah but not not the uh bx band gangbusters so okay cool yeah, yeah the guy that we've got coming on for this episode is mark hunt who's behind the the most recent right. gangbuster so i was curious if you guys had any right. experience yeah i did play the original back in the day and i can't remember okay, if it was balanced i remember the system was kind of its own system um i would take i guess uh, you posited it as a con game so as a con game i would probably do it as a dcc or mcc final because just just less mechanics involved for the players. You just remember like, oh, just roll high, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but as a more extended game, I think uh, Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I like that Warhammer Fantasy roleplay idea, or even sticking with the sort of DCC MCC thing where you you do survive, and then okay, now it's three weeks later, and you, your final characters are now your first level resistance characters. Yeah. Right. So I also think doing like a resistance kind of story like this, but with like the dread mechanics, could be really cool. Now, would you use like resource management? Because I mean, one of the unsung heroes of this story is canned food. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. A lot of canned ham. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Potted meats and yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, kippered herrings and <laughs> crackers. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is a, a fun little sort of uh, hex crawl, post-apocalyptic post post scrounging, you know, aftermath or any of those games like that. But you don't want to play aftermath because that's just insane. <laughs> but um, yeah, aftermath is the one that had like the 30 hit locations. Oh, <laughs> you had armored like, uh, you had armored on the inside of your elbow or armor on the outside of your elbow, you know. <laughs> it was fun though. I played it back in the day, but yeah, but not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's um, a certain, there's a certain level where, where simulationism just becomes complete absurdity. Right, right. But I mean, there is two aspects of this, right? This uh, this narrative, right? Because this area that homes and challengers are definitely leveled characters, right? They're like probably the equivalent of eighth or ninth leveled characters, right? In sort of a BX model, right? Maybe fifth level characters in, in DCC, MCC, right? So if you're playing a, a game that doesn't particularly level like uh, Call of Cthulhu, then it takes it more towards the original Wells narrative than towards this Holmes, Holmes and Challenger versus, versus the Martians. Um, anyway, my two cents. So Adam, before we wrap up, were there any kind of um, thoughts you had about this story that we really didn't get a chance to get to? Um, just overall, did, to be honest, didn't much care for it, I would say. <laughs> I, I, I still think they got Sherlock Holmes kind of wrong. I, I think he's kind of uh, the, with him and his relationship with Mrs. Hudson. Didn't like it. Didn't really seem Holmesian to me. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Well, certainly you're not wrong. It's just your opinion. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> it's an opinion. Oh, okay. Well, I'm off the hook. 
<laughs> Eric, what do you think? Is there any anything yeah. you want to discuss? I, I mean, no, just I comment. It's something that goes a thread that's in the original War of the Worlds and that's in this story as well. Uh, just kind of common themes of humanity of ignoring the problem until it's on your doorstep. You know, the people in London hearing about the you know what's going on in I think Woking or Surrey. I, yeah, and then. Uh, the the people who flaunt the uh, the stay at home order and go right out right exactly the, the no masters at P- in Piccadilly Circus exactly it's like you know, <laughs> I think Watson encounters them or something it's like all lit up and they're out Challenger at bars Challenger does and he thinks about how that um, how uh, the world will be better without them right Watson almost encounters them but yeah Challenger's directly <laughs> yeah. and then so they get scooped up by the Martians as food uh, and they're out at these bars and restaurants partying. And then just when I've like forgotten about the COVID similarities uh, that the aliens die from a coronavirus that they couldn't avoid, you know, so like, ah, this is timeless. That we're going through that. <laughs> timeless and timely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Matt, time's any, a flat circle. Last thing you wanted to chat about before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I think we, I got all my, all the thoughts that I kind of, percolated over the week um out so cool um i mean i've got some things on here um but like one that i thought was gross was um referring to oscar wilde homosexuality as a morbid aberration i was like hmm, that's gross i'm gay i don't like reading that um, now, who, who said that again um it's on page 38 so let's take a look yeah yeah i think it was holmes um yeah, I fear I must disagree with you, said Holmes. Maupassant, as I think, was always driven for objectivity. In any case, much of what we consider immoral is merely pathological. Oscar Wilde, for instance, was imprisoned under our English laws for a morbid aberration. He would have been shown more mercy in France. Right. I don't think that Holmes is claiming that Oscar Wilde has a morbid aberration. I think in that when I read that, I was reading that that was what the British law was saying. And I don't think he had any particular judgment versus versus um versus oscar wilde that was my take on the scene but i could see it's still you know obviously not pleasant either way right because you know there's no reason why he should have ever gotten to jail but sure that's the, yeah so i because i thought i've i was again remarking that i found that holmes was quite tolerant in this story it's the most tolerant of out of all the characters fair but again yeah and uh hoy did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share um I enjoyed this probably a little bit more than the rest of you, and I'm not sure that I have any particular reason to, other than I just I did. (laughs) Well, see, Adam's not wrong, but you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, I accept that. You know, we all somebody has to be wrong on the internet, and this week it's me. Cool. Um, I, well, I yeah. liked it just for the record. I enjoyed it. And, and like the fact that we're so close to Halloween right now while we're recording yeah. today. And like, the, yeah. I also went and listened to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds radio broadcast, right. which was right. Awesome. Oh, fun, fun. Yeah. So, got me in the spirit of the season. Right, right. In <laughs> fact, the one that's probably the most wrong take is my favorite was the War of the Worlds movie from the 1950s, because as, as cool as it is, it's just like weirdly Judeo Christian at the end. And it's really like divine providence saves us from the aliens, right? Is what it comes down to, even though in the form of microbes, right? <laughs> so, so if anything, this is a less wrong take on War of the Worlds than, you know, any of the other takes. So, yeah, 1950s cinematic adaptations don't usually get to the 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 heart of uh, 
deeper, yeah. more complex <laughs> literary <laughs> underpinnings. No. Uh, at least not if they're not like a B or a C movie film noir, you know, if something, you know, more glossy and mainstream, yeah, usually it's not, not there on it. Well, gang, this has been really fun. Adam and Eric, great to see you as always. Matt, this has been great. I hope that yep. we get to um, hang out with you more in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've been listening to the patron book clubs and being like, yeah, I should should read them and just join in even like my my project in this project is to look for the origins of Warhammer because mm. Warhammer came out of out of out of D&D in that Games Workshop was the distributor for TSR for a number of years and then needed a competitor when they opened TSR UK. So there's that's why I was so excited and didn't and didn't end up getting to do the ship of Ishtar, but um, Nurgle appears in there, right? And so, anyhow, right? Yeah, any of the not... uh, any of the Moorcock stuff would be great for that, obviously. Yeah, yeah we got a future episode on there. So, yep, yeah, yep, so. cool, terrific. All right, gang, catch you later. Thank you. All right. Okay, thank you to Eric Hicks, Adam Styers, and Matt Richards for joining us on the book club today. Great session, guys. Yeah, that okay. was so fun. Thank you, guys. All right. Uh, so if you would like to give us some feedback, please send us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So for those of you who uh, just listened to this episode, you can. this is a great example of what our patron book clubs are like. Generally, before we record the episode with our special guests, we have these awesome sessions with our patrons who sign up for these. And um, yes, so again, you know, thanks to Eric Hicks, Matt Richards, and Adam Styers. That was so much fun. Thank you, guys. We would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Trevor Bramble, Christopher Murray, Ethan Schoonover, Thomas Edward, William Souter, Eric, 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 Noah Green, Gabriel Laycock, and Eric Johnson. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we couldn't do it without all of you. Exactly. And coming up, our next episode, episode 83, is going to be Jack Williamson's The Humanoids. And episode 84 will be Gardner F. Fox's Kothar and the Conjurer's Curse. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed!